right, here we go for another episode of the Bibliotheques podcast, and it is a great day to continue on in our discussion of the Chronicles of Narnia in the summer of Narnia. Cody, my co-host, is with me as always. Cody, how are you today? I'm doing just fine, man. Ready to get into another story under the High King Peter's rule. Absolutely. So that story is called The Horse and His Boy. It's what we'll be talking about for the next two episodes. And then, you know, I don't know if we're going to have my mom on for this one. It's kind of a, (laughs) I hate to say this, but like, this is probably one of the least well-known of the books, Chronicles of Narnia. So we'll see. We'll talk to my mom if she has like crazy ideas about this book. Happy to have her on. Otherwise, I'm kind of dying to get into like Prince Caspian and Don Treader after that, but we'll, we'll see where things take us. This book was actually published fifth in order, but as we're reading it, it is the third chronologically. And as Cody alluded to, to begin the podcast, it takes place during King Peter and Edmund, Lucy, and Susan, all of their reign as kings and queens of Narnia following the events of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So that's just where, like, the timeline that it's set in. But we're not in Narnia at the beginning of this story. So just setting the table there. Additionally, we really need to mention one thing. And look, this story, it gets a ton of flack, rightfully so, for being high-key racist as fuck. There is a ton going on in this story that's like unavoidably really, really bad. And so we just want to say that right off the bat and say, we're not saying that that's not what this book is. It's definitely there. What we're here to do is to tell this story that's still really good in a way that doesn't say that the racism isn't there and isn't a part of the story, but also is a really good tale. It's a really fun, it's a really fun story. And in that telling, we're going to point out the racism when it pops up numerous times. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. And this is to say before we dig into the story, we are going to be digging into dated at best and actively racist tropes of people geographic areas uh to be super honest pronunciation and spelling of names Mm -hmm. all of and cultural cultural is a big one it's it's yeah it's not good folks we're gonna bring it up and a lot of times it's gonna be unavoidable because it drives the plot of the story so we're gonna go in we're gonna talk about a lot of the general themes of the story what we like about this book but be prepared for the fact that We will stumble upon, like Paul said, high key racist content. We're going to call it out as we see it because it's there, folks. And then we're just going to move on with the story. It's It's the only way that we see fit to both respect the actual story and the plot in its place in the Chronicles of Narnia's collection while being honest about the racist content therein. Yeah. And I just want to say, like, there with all of that said, and and I I guess I'm kind of just repeating myself maybe a little bit here. It saddens me that this is part of this story because there is a way to tell this story, I believe, that doesn't include all of this other nonsense and just like hateful language. So 
unfortunately, it's there, but the story still holds up, I think, even if you remove a lot of that stuff out. So with that, I think we can just jump right in. Today, we're covering chapters one through seven of The Horse and His Boy. And Cody, why don't you why don't you kick it off for us? So the chapter one is titled How Shasta Set Out on His Travels. So like we said earlier, this story takes place within technically Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Basically, it's a story from when after uh, this brothers and sisters are anointed kings and queens and before they make it back to the wardrobe at the end of the book the story takes place in the middle of that we are brought to a southern nation okay called callerman yeah callerman yeah callerman yeah and okay this is where it the racism kind of ticks off right away so southern nation south of narnia we are brought to a coastal fishing house where a uh, boy named Shasta and importantly, the one he calls dad, Arshish, are two poor fishermen. The dad super sucks. And uh, when he has a good day fishing and a good day at the market, he's basically like ambivalent and neglectful to his son. And when he has a bad day fishing, he's actively evil and beats his son. So right away, Arshish, this father figure is not good. Uh, Shasta dreams of going north uh, and he imagines what is north of their border and his father tells him to not be distracted by outside of their small southern fishing town. One day, uh, a great nobleman in Kellerman, nobleman or knights, whatever the equivalency you want to apply to it, are called Tarkans. They come to town. Uh, This man is dark skinned like his father, um, but he's got some traits of what would be a nobleman. You know, he's got very fine leather goods he's wearing a shirt of mail he's on a horse important he has a big simtar simtars of course are curved what we would know to be as uh middle eastern and north african uh style sword he has a shield and he has a dyed maroon crimson beard which i thought was a cool detail yeah, I've heard that elsewhere in literature. I'm trying to think of where, but it's not important. So continue. It, it, drew, it drew my eye because, you know, that just seems like a, a cool character trait. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think it is it like how Dario Naharis has the purple May- mustache oh, in Game of Thrones. Was. In Game of Thrones, they talk about that all the time. Yes. yes OK, right. so that's what that's what that's what I thought when it when this character came in. Uh, but he comes to their uh, little uh, fishing house and is basically like, I'm rich, you're poor. That means you need to give me a place to stay. And Arshish is like, you got it, man. No, no big deal. So because of this, uh, Shasta is kind of driven out of the house. And um, it's important to note that uh, Arshish is dark skinned like this Tarkhan. And Shasta is light skinned and doesn't really look anything like Arshish. Then uh, so since Shasta is driven out of the house, he kind of like listens in at the crack in the wall to listen to the two men talk. And this Tarkhan inquires about purchasing the boy and Arshish is like how could you expect me to sell my own son and the Tarkan's like look dude uh, everyone <laughs> knows this isn't your kid he looks nothing like you like let alone the fact that he's not the same skin color as you this is this is really where the the the, the active race stuff gets in so again forgive us this is a driving point of the plot like he can't be your son because he doesn't look like you I want to buy the boy Arshish then relents and says, yes, you're right. I found him uh, one night coming in from fishing. A rowboat came in, a man, a fair-skinned man who had just died. He was still warm, came in in a rowboat holding the boy. Basically, like this guy 
starved himself to keep the kid alive. So he decided to basically keep him on his like son, big air quotes, basically indentured servant, kind of a slave. Total slave. Total slave. Yeah. So then they start bargaining over a price. Shasta slips away and is basically like, okay, this is kind of of a relief because I hate Arshish and never loved him like a father figure, like a boy should love his dad. So this is kind of nice. It's like, and then he starts wondering aloud, like, I wonder what kind of master this Tarkhan would be. Maybe if I like serve him well and be really good to him, I'll be able to like get promoted one day to night or if I like save him in battle or something. And he's kind of saying this out loud in a field where the Tarkhan's horse is like peacefully grazing. The horse turns to him and is like, Hey, buddy, that's not going to fucking happen. Yeah, no, don't get your hopes up, man. <laughs> and then Shasta is like, whoa, a talking horse, as anyone would be. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's not like Shasta's. And this is totally natural. Like your reaction isn't going to be like, oh, fuck. Well, that sucks. I was really hoping this master would be cool. It's like, whoa, forget that my life is going to suck. Otherwise, let's look at this far more important horse over here yeah this massive yeah. white war horse is actually a talking animal yeah <laughs> and the horse is like all right buddy you need to come close i'm about to give you the lowdown this tarkhan he's a huge dick not to me mind you mm-hmm. i'm an important war host i need to be kept alive and well fed so he can't treat me poorly but i've seen the way he treats his slaves and you got basically like a year before you're either beat to death or like completely brainwashing the servitude it's not going to be good Here's the thing. If yeah. you if you can tell, I'm from somewhere that's magic. That place is Narnia, completely north of Calerman. I don't belong here. I was kidnapped or stolen as a foal because I grazed too far south. I was kidnapped and sold in here, and I couldn't tell everyone that I I could talk because then I would be basically like a circus animal, totally, and they'd never yeah. let me go. So now I've been waiting for years. You're my opportunity. We're here. We're in the middle of nowhere in this little fishing like hut. You're going to free me and I'm going to take you with me. We're both going to Narnia. He's like, also, you're from Narnia because you have fair skin. You're white. The people up there don't look like anyone down here. So that's probably where you're from. Maybe this other country that's kind of by Narnia, but definitely not Calerman. So we both need to go where we belong. Another thing like, oh, yeah, you don't belong here because you don't look like them. That's not great. Yeah, no, like that. no. And and uh, it takes a little bit of convincing but Shasta's pretty much like, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, the reasoning is it, it makes sense because the, the horse is like, look, I can't run off because people just assume that I ran away from my master and yeah. they'll capture me, bring me back. And it makes sense for you because you need something to ride on. You're not going to make it across this desert to Narnia by yourself. So, yeah. Yep. It's it's a big win-win. Uh, that night when uh, Arshish and the Tarkhan are asleep, they slip away. The chapter kind of ends with them with the horse being like, okay, I know more about riding a horse than you do because I'm a horse. So I'm going to tell you how to put on the saddle, how to tighten me, where to put the reins, because you're not going to be leading me. I know where we're going. I know how to run, basically teaching him how to ride. And there's a really cool detail where the, um, they kind of go to this little inlet where like a river meets a mouth of the ocean and he chooses to walk on the rocky side because it wouldn't make any footprints. Mm-hmm. That was just kind of cool. Yeah. And we find the chapter ends with finding out that the horse is named Bree. And uh, Shasta and him exchange names. And that's when they pick up speed. Chapter ends. Yeah. Yeah. End of chapter one. Um, So in typical Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis fashion, just kind of throwing you immediately into the story. It's great. He doesn't waste any time. One thing I thought was funny about this chapter is like C.S. Lewis loves to make like, you know, borderline like animal puns wherever he can. (laughs) So the horse introducing himself like his full name is some 
basically like onomatopoeia for what a horse sounds like. It's like Bree, but like had to ask like, okay, I'm not going to say that every time. Can I just call you Bree? Or it's like, fine. He uses onomatopoeia throughout this book. Yeah. Yep. So that's chapter one, but moving on, we got a lot to cover today, a lot of ground to cover with our boys. So getting into chapter two, uh, titled A Wayside Adventure, Shasta wakes up after riding the previous night and is sore as shit. He like fell over a bunch the day before, like a dozen times, I think it says, which sounds awful if you're like a little kid falling off of a full grown war horse. CTE. That's a long way to go. Yeah, but um, mostly he's just sore because riding is fucking hard to do. So they eat some breakfast and discuss kind of, I found it interesting, they're discussing the morality over taking and using the food and the money that was left in the saddlebags. Like, you're both running away from what originally had been just kind of like slavery to you. What's in that bag belongs to you at this point. <laughs> like fucking take what's yours. Yeah, guys. new life guys. Gotta lean into it. For sure. So they eat, uh, they eat and then they turn towards the sea to avoid the main roads because their route is going to take them through this big city called Tashban. And they're kind of trying to avoid being seen by anybody as best they can. Before they head off, Bree is like rolling around in the grass. Here's another kind of like C.S. Lewis animal thing. He's like rolling around in the grass and Shasta is laughing at him because it looks silly. And Bree gets worried and like self-conscious that this is a domesticated, not talking horse thing to do. And is like, do I need to stop doing that before I get back to Narnia and see all the bros <laughs> like need to be like a cool talking horse again? Bree's like, I, I don't know. Dude, you're asking the wrong yeah. guy. I was a like I was. Literally, I literally thought I was some other dude's kid an hour ago. I couldn't tell you the least about talking horse shit. Anyway, so the two um, are kind of walking along. And as they're traveling, they Bree stops them and is like, do you hear that? And they notice that there's another rider that's kind of like shadowing them. And so they get scared, obviously, because they think, you know, somebody's coming after them. So they wait for a cloud to cover the moon, give them a little cover. Bree goes and hides in some like sand dunes. And while they're there, they hear a lion roar. And as a reader, having read like Aslan and everything, we're like, oh, Aslan's back. Nope. There are other lions that exist in this world and they want to eat Bree and Shasta. So they dip. Bree is not feeling it at all and is just like galloping full speed. And as they go off, they come closer and closer with this other rider and its horse. So as they're running full speed away from the lions, they end up going towards this kind of like ocean inlet and getting away from the lions that way. But they're so close to this other rider now, they're basically like knee to knee that Jasta notices, okay, this other horse is also talking to its rider. But Shasta notices like, okay, the rider also doesn't have a beard and is smaller and slender too. But is dressed like a Tarkhan. But is dressed like a Tarkhan. So so what's going on here? We've got a mysterious looking rider, another talking horse, and we come up on the other side of this inlet and 
learned that, okay, this writer is a girl. So another C.S. Lewis favorite. Let's put a boy and a girl together as our favorite, as our, as our main characters. So the girl's name is Aravis. Is that how we're going to say this? I was going to say Aravis or Aravis. Aravis, 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 whatever. And her horse, Quinn. 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 Um, H-W-I-N. <laughs> and they're kind of discussing with each other. They're like, holy shit, you have a talking horse. I have a talk or I'm like, I'm a talking horse. What the fuck are we all doing here together? And we realize that Arvis is kind of running away from something also. And her plan is also to get to Narnia, though she doesn't tell her full story until the next chapter. And um, that is how chapter two ends and gets us right into Arvis's story in chapter three. This is the first chapter in this book, or really in any of the books, where I was really wishing that C.S. Lewis had drawn a map for me like Tolkien did. Do you want it? It's in here, bro. It's in here? Yeah. I noticed it at first because I was like, no fucking way. It's mostly nothing. Oh, it's just <laughs> the desert between Tashban and Arkenland? Yeah. Sick, dude. <laughs> oh. C.S. Lewis, come on, man. Give it's, me a break. He might as well have just like printed a blank page and drawn like two dots on it. Okay. So so anyway, so that's that's the first thing I wanted to say about that. So again, I wish you would have drawn a map for me. <laughs> yes. Anyway, going back to here, I feel like the real meat of this chapter is the fact that we're introduced to another character, also with a talking horse. Um, but this is basically and like kind of like a reciprocal equal but opposite it's two female characters the female horse win the mare and aravis pronunciation however you want this girl who's dressed in tarkhan armor they're kind of like flip opposites so while the person who does a lot of the talking is brie mm -hmm. he has a younger poorer and less experienced writer in shasta and in the two female characters, you have a quieter, more self-conscious mare in Wynn and a what we learn is a wealthier, more self-assured, more competent female writer. Yep. And the dynamic of that is expressed uh, where neither of the writers want to go to Narnia together. They want to do their own thing. But the two talking horses are like, this is great. Yeah, we know both were to go better in numbers. And so now there's a couple of dynamics set up where everyone has something in common with the other and something that's not in common with them, which is what I thought was really cool. I also like that this whole time, this introduces a theme of real self-consciousness in Shasta that this girl has nothing, wants nothing to do with him, views him as poor, views him as unimportant. Yeah. The only reason he's really being acknowledged is because his horse also talks. Well, and it's it's also just like up to this point in this book, there is this theme going on that we're going to continue to see of like belonging to something or somewhere or someone. Mm -hmm. And every single uh, like every single one of these characters, the two horses, the two kids what we see is that they're all running from something because they don't want to either belong to someone else or they're looking for something to belong to. Right. Right. Yeah. And that really just springboards us into chapter three at the gates of Tashban. Aravis sits down to tell her story. Bree notes that in uh, Callerman, 
Uh, storytelling is a real art form, the way that, and the Lewis notes that it's kind of the way that like British or Western school children are taught essay writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this context, you actually want to listen to what they say. Yeah, that's a funny note. <laughs> so we so we learn um, her full name is Aravis Tarkina. So now we kind of know that like, no, there's no real last names. It's just like first name, son of someone, son of someone, titles, titles, titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Tarkan and Tarkina are the gender association almost like a like lord a, like, and lady lord and lady of, kind of yeah so aravis tarkina titles 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 son of someone is uh she's big rich and um her mother died at a young age so now she has an evil stepmother dude Go this figure. is a disney story i know dude this is <laughs> okay uh and it lo and behold the stepmother hates her shocker mm-hmm. she was promised to marry a super ugly super old dude who's basically a worm tongue for the tisrock the tisrock is basically the king sultan figure in this please note that whenever you say tisrock you must follow it up by saying may he live forever so that is something they do that a ton in this book it's that and uh to narnia and the north yeah. those two things is like the biggest word cloud bubbles. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Aravis finds out she's going to be a child bride and uh, is super upset. Um, not only because it's not even like her dad's plan. It's like her stepmom's way of getting rid of her, mm-hmm. but her dad's going along with it. So after crying for a day, she takes her brother's dagger who died in war and goes out to the desert with this random mare that she took out there. And she's going to commit suicide to escape this marriage, this forced marriage. And that so that she can be with her brother again. And then before she's able to commit suicide, the horse basically starts speaking and the way that any talking animal would do, convinces you to stop what you're doing and pay attention to the talking horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she makes a good point and just not really that we know what the point is, but just that like, kind of talks her out of it. Well, I think it's an interesting one because she says like, Hey, your life might suck right now, but things could get better. If you killed yourself, that's it. That's it. That's the end. Yeah. Um, this is actually where Aravis comes up with a extremely good plan. Yeah. For getting out of here. So um, this is, you know, we we did talk in the last uh, couple podcasts about C.S. Lewis's inability to write for women. He makes it up for this because this is super smart. So let's get into it. She comes back after what would have been her attempted suicide to her father and basically ta- says, I've come around to it. I'm super excited. I want to be a bride to this super important politician guy to do so. I'm going to take like a maiden or two go out to the woods and perform these maiden sacrifices for three days as is customary for our people. He's like, great. Sounds good. See you in three days. So then that night she goes to one of her maidens who we find out later is a spy for her mom, stepmom. And it's like, make sure you wake me up extra early tonight. So you're going to have to go to bed early. She then drugs her drink so that she won't wake up for a while and slips out early in the morning. She takes her brother's suit of armor that she kept after he died uh, and this talking horse, they bail, but they don't go to Narnia right away. They go to this slightly northern town that's like a crossroads trading post. And her dressed up like a Tarkhan looks important, goes to like basically the like postmaster general of this crossroads mm-hmm. and is like, I have a letter from my master, important politician guy that was set to marry Aravis. The letter is addressed to her father and says, Hey, it's me, guy who is betrothed to your daughter. I was just wandering around in the woods, <laughs> saw her doing some uh, like crazy ritual shit that maidens do. I got so 
essentially turned on by it. <laughs> I decided to partake in the sacrifice myself and marry her on the spot. Things are great. We love each other. We're back at my hometown. You should come visit us the first chance you get because she's not coming back. And by the they, way, is it cool if I call you dad? Yeah. But <laughs> do you prefer dad or brother? Doesn't matter. Anyway, come hang out. It's going to be awesome. So this is basically a way for Aravis to buy herself like hmm, a week or two before, yeah. before obviously he's her dad goes to see this guy who's like basically in line to be the grand vizier vizier. We learn that this is basically like counselor numero uno to the Tisrock. Mm-hmm. May he live forever. May he live forever. So that's kind of where the story ends. And, you know, Shasta is super confused by this because he has no idea about any of these like customs. He's like, well, he's like, he's like drugging that maiden. Like, that's not cool. And she's like, well, she was a spy for my mom and she'll probably get beaten. That's not really my problem. And she, and he's like, Hey, well, just so you know, I kind of was a servant up until like a week ago. Yeah. Being and beaten I, isn't cool. Being beaten isn't really cool. And Bree's kind of like, Hey man, shut up. She's telling a story. Yeah. Yeah. So this is another notice that Bree is, not really cool with him. Uh, pretty much like embarrasses him any chance to get when it's like their turn to tell the story. He thinks it's very funny to like emphasize how much that Shasta was like falling off him while learning how to ride a horse. And Shasta's like kind of holding back like, hey, man, again, I am a poor child. I was like fixing nets up yeah. until like a week ago. So, yeah, I don't I, I mean, I don't know if you thought that it was like malicious or anything like I felt like Bree's kind of poking fun. I don't know. Like, I, I didn't think of it as being kind of like a dick move, though. Yeah. To, well, to me, it's just like he's already self-conscious enough and like thinks uh. he's really dumb and bad at stuff. And and you're probably right that he was just probably like, yeah, you fell down. Oh, that was pretty funny. And like, but it, this is just compounding on a lot of things. OK. All right. And it's and it's also you should just imply that he obviously has a crush on this Aravis girl like doesn't want to get made fun of in front of her because he's like 12 years old so probably but Shasta's also I think he's also just kind of bummed he doesn't get guy time anymore that's probably true too so they kind of chill out for the night next morning they have uh another breakfast and they're getting closer to Tashban they realize uh they kind of come together to make a plan about it um there's too much business on either side of the city uh, on one side it's like the bay and they can't go swimming around it because two children swimming on horses in a crowded business port is going to draw a lot of attention. The other side, there's this river that goes around the city and there's a bunch of rich people having uh, water parties, just like a basically like a massive Vegas pool party. Sounds but the entire side. Yeah, sounds dope. Uh, don't know why they didn't want to go to that. <laughs> water parties sound cool. But, you know, they kind of just have to go through it. And this is where Wynne comes in. She's like, OK, look, the only opportunity is to go through it gate to gate front to back. That's how we're going to have to make the play. Aravis, you're going to have to put your armor in our bags because you can't be dressed up like a Tarkon because you're not. Mm-hmm. And the second you go into the, like Tarkon Central, yeah. they're going to sniff us out and get us. Uh, Shasta, you look great. You look like a poor boy. That's what we want to see. Aravis, you have to look bad. And uh, Bree, you look like a kick-ass warhorse. You are going to stick out like a sore thumb because two poor kids can't be handling a war horse. We kind of have to make you look like more like a jacked plow horse, essentially. And this idea gets a stupid amount of criticism for being like the only obvious and like best plan. They're like, I don't want to do it. And he, she's like, why? And our and Brie are like, because we don't want to look bad. 
they're both very proud. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think that plays into what you were saying before about like Brie kind of giving, you know, Shasta some shit about like fault. Like, I think he's kind of, a just a proud kind of like aloof figure and Aravis is the same in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. Uh, another important thing to note at the end of this chapter, cause this is where the chapter ends. Mm-hmm. Um, Bree makes a <clears throat> not good comment about how it's a good thing you're going to Narnia because like in my country, no woman is forced to marry if she doesn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. So add one to the cancel. What are we calling it? Cancel. Cancel. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're going to try and keep a running track of when uh, we're, we're not trying to cancel Lewis by any stretch, but if we're going to have a little cancel o meter about yeah. problematic things. So that's another knock to him. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. it's just and and look like if you're just listening to us you probably won't hear most of these things because like we don't talk about a lot of that questionable stuff but if you read the book like there are things every other page and it's and and any one of them by themselves is not going to set it off yeah set off alarm bells it's just it's so consistent when you're reading it and Mm -hmm. like if you want to get really uh nitpicky and this time we have dark-skinned man keeps a white kid as a slave idea that it can never they can never have a father-son relationship because they're so different yep a lot of bad child bride stuff going on we'll see a lot more in this next chapter too it like a lot has to do with just like general culture and aesthetic right so in chapter four titled shasta falls in with the narnians uh the gang approaches tashban and it seems like a lovely city it's described as being pretty beautiful with like a lot of cool shit going on, you know, greenery and all, all the other good things that CS Lewis loves to write about. I thought of like Babylon, you know, between two rivers and it's got like hanging gardens and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Me too. So as they get closer, um, there's just kind of like this weird, like back and forth that's going on between like Brie and Aravis and also between Shasta and Aravis. Like everybody's just kind of giving each other shit, like right before they're doing this mission, which is like, guys, stay focused. Eyes on the prize. Yeah. So they get into the city all disguised. As Cody said before, they like made all of these arrangements to cut Brie's tail shorter, make him look more like a pack horse. And as soon as they walk in, someone's like, hey, that's a war horse. <laughs> like, it's so fucking funny, dude. <laughs> just no luck there whatsoever. Yeah, like this. Basically, they walk in and these like guards at the entrance of the gate, like take a look at Shasta holding this obvious war horse. And it's like pretty nice pack horse. You got there, slave boy. Does your master know you took it from him? And he's just like, I'm not a slave. And then he just cracks him in the head. Yeah. Like, don't, don't, don't talk to me, urchin. Yeah. Go on your way. It's brutal. So. In this chapter, they're making their way through the streets of Tashban. It's very, very busy in the streets. Like, imagine just kind of like merchants everywhere. You're going through markets and stuff. People are busy going about their day. So they're walking through this. And very routinely, they get stopped and just like pushed to the side of the street because a lord, what is it? What are we saying? Tarkan. Tarkan or Tarkina is being carried through the streets on these litters by slaves every all of the pores have to be like moved to the side of the street so these people can get through so that's going on at one point as they continue walking through the streets there's this announcement that the quote white barbarian king from narnia is there and so 
again, they're getting jostled around. Shasta ends up getting pushed to the front of this crowd. So he's in the front row watching these kings and queens walk down the street, which is different. And it's noted. This is another point where it's like, you know, little like C.S. Lewis cancelometer here, because where the southern lords and ladies are going through carried by slaves and litters and looking very like down on the poor people the white and far more beautiful you know i mean fucking god yeah like like friendlier faced they're walking they're not like being carried by slaves and everything it's just like jesus christ okay so anyway so as this is going on the guy that's leading this group of narnians down the street spots Shasta and is like, where the fuck have you been? Like, you ran away and now you're coming back with us. And Shasta obviously is just like, what the fuck is going on here? So he gets grabbed out of the crowd and is taken down the street by these Narnians and he's holding hands with this king of Narnia and taken to this very like swanky home palace thing within the city where they keep asking him questions about like, okay, like, where'd you go? What have you been doing? What's wrong with you? And they keep calling him Prince Corin. And eventually this goat man, as we know, a fawn comes in the room. This is in fact, Mr. Tumnus from the Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. He's like, hey, everybody, it's pretty clear that this kid has been affected by being in the sun too long and has no idea what's going on. So why doesn't everybody just leave him alone for a little bit? After that, the kings and queens begin discussing their kind of original business of coming to the city, which was, it was Susan coming down, Queen Susan coming down to this city to basically decide whether or not she wanted to marry the prince that lived there, right? And she decides very quickly, like, okay, I don't want to marry this guy. And Edmund's like, thank God. King Edmund, also there, is like, thank God you said that, Susan, because I don't fucking like this guy either, and I don't want to have him as a brother-in-law. That does bring up kind of a little bit of a problem for us, though, and I'd like to tell you about it in the next chapter. And that's basically where chapter four ends. Yep. Chapter four ends with Edmund um, describing this uh, Prince Radabat or Rabadash, mm-hmm. Prince Rabadash as uh, <clears throat> Susan's dark faced lover. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Lewis, dude, my it, God, like stop it. Add another tick. That one was that's that's that that one is like the one that like stopped me in my tracks and i was just like staring at the page like no way dude yeah but he he found a way oh yeah so but basically susan's idea is like look when he visited us in narnia he was awesome super gracious guest really intelligent really impressive and you know how picky i am with my suitors so the fact that i even entertained this guy is a credit to him but now that I've seen what he's like on his home turf, how he treats his uh, subordinates, how he treats his servants, how he thinks of himself when he's on his home turf, I don't like him at all. That's kind of where my mind has changed. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a few other people in the room, including a dwarf and a talking crow. No, raven. raven. Yeah. And um, they both have their own ways of basically saying like, yeah, you don't know somebody until you actually see them in their own environment. So that's what we're doing now. And it's not great. No, but that's where uh, chapter five starts. Prince Corin. Uh, so Edmund basically gives us the rundown about what's going to happen if Susan tells him he doesn't want to marry him. He's kind of game theorying out that this guy is a huge dick. And why would he invite us all the way here? We're in a pretty vulnerable spot in this house palace, kind of like, you know, Tashban Airbnb, as it were. <laughs> right. I think there's a strong possibility that if you say no, we're not getting out of here until and when you decide to marry this guy. And Mr. Tumnus confirms the suspicion by saying that he straight up heard that from like a counselor to Prince Rabidash and like a very like evil, like you're not getting out of here without the queen's hand in marriage, like some real weird, problematic, sneaky stuff. So Tumnus actually comes up with this great plan. Their guess, but they should, like basically Tashban elites party all the time it's all they do they just feast and banquet and drink and have river parties and so when, again when you're rich what is there to do again a, a bibliotheque's classic theme yes. of rich people having nothing to do <laughs> it's a it's a tale as old as time span genres there is a class of individual with nothing to do but to light their money on fire and in in Callerman, we are finding no exceptions. So Tumnus's idea is what if we teach them about a really fun Narnian boat party? <laughs> yeah. And 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 uh and the whole time, you know, Edmund is like I see the vision. I can see it clicking together. Tumnus's idea is that if we tell them, "Hey, in two nights we're going to have a sick boat party. You just need to give us a day to get food, provisions, gear, party favors bring it onto our super enormous party yacht that just so happens to be the fastest boat in the port yeah <laughs> so that we can set up so that the next night we can host this cool party for everyone mm -hmm. but what we're gonna do is once we have all of our stores on board that dawn we're gonna hightail it out of here and they don't have a naval frigate or a shipping merchant ship that's fast enough to catch us. So we're just going to get them like that. Yeah. And it's honestly a great plan. Yes. Edmund heads up play. Great. And they go, okay, that's going to be good. Edmund says, I'm going to tell Prince Rabidash about that tonight at the banquet. Cause again, banquets every night. Yep. What are these people doing? Banquets. That's what <laughs> he's like. Okay. Uh, we're going to go. Uh, we're leaving uh, Prince Corin here. You are super sick. You need to recover. We'll see you tomorrow, man. Don't tell anyone about our dope as shit plan. Mm -hmm. And they leave. Uh, that night, Shasta is just kind of sitting there and Tumnus is like, hey, man, I know you're not going to talk right now, so you can just listen to me. Uh, <laughs> don't worry about this dumb country where everyone sucks and everyone's evil and ugly. Uh, yeah. You can't wait to get back to Archon land where things are tight and you're going to be like a knight and your dad's going to do cool shit. And Shasta can't even like fantasize about this because like I'm going to if I get there. I'm going to get found out so fast. Yeah. And he doesn't tell them anything because he's so worried about like, if I give up my friends, what if they either don't believe me or what if worse, they do believe me and they turn me into like the Callerman people. 
Um, so he's just staying quiet the whole time. Rock in a hard place. Yeah, rock in a hard right place. Uh, later that night, everyone's asleep. Uh, Prince Corin sneaks back through a window and like breaks a vase. And Shasta looks at him and like these two look identical. Mm-hmm. Some real Prince in the Popper shit going on here. And he looks at him and Corin's like, who are you? And Shasta's like, my name's Shasta. Who are you? He's like, he's like my name's Corin. He's like, you're Prince They think I'm Prince Corin. <laughs> And yeah. there's this really fun dialogue between them. And he's like, dude, where have you been? And then he's like, okay, so last night I was like, I like snuck off because I'm kind of, I'm kind of a dick like that. And I was <laughs> fucking around and I got these two guys to start fighting. And then I got like arrested. And then I told the guards that if I follow them, I could buy them wine. And they were like, that sounds dope. So I got him drunk as hell. And then I snuck off again. By then it was nighttime and I'm climbing up the walls here. And now I'm here. Oh my God, it's so hot in this fucking country. I'm so thirsty. Do you have anything to drink? And Jess like, no, I drank everything. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love that. Like it, there's a note in there uh, where like Prince Corin was also interested in Shasta's story. And like Shasta's version of that is so much different. Like, hey, yeah. So um, I just found my first talking horse of my life. I escaped from my, what I thought was my dad, not actually my dad. Uh, from basically slavery and avoided actual slavery and like <laughs> hightailed across the country. Some dude who was really rich thought I was you and took me here and I've just been eating and drinking all afternoon. And then like they're kind of like, he's like, dude, you need to get the fuck in here so I can get out because if if they found out that I'm pretending to be you, I know how you rich people work. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. like, now tell me how you scaled down here. He goes, it's actually pretty easy. You take the vines down then you're on this like veranda, you got a tiptoe, so that no one can hear you underneath you. And then you just skedaddle down, a, down like a ledge and then you'll be on the ground level. And he's like, okay, cool. And like they kind of get in here and like, you know, Prince Corin, enormous troublemaker, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So he looks at me, he's like, damn, dude, you were pretending to be me for like 10 hours. Yeah. Like, That's kind of badass. Mm-hmm. He's like, if you make it to Arkenland on your trip, go to my dad, King Loon, tell him you're my boy and I got you. I'll yeah. see you in like, wait, when did you say it was happening? He's like, Tell Tom this to replay the plan to you. Like yeah. that's when I'll see you. He's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll see you if I can uh, manage to slog through the desert. <laughs> Enjoy your party boat. Yeah, it never crosses either of their minds to be like, dude, just hang out with us. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, you like no, a- no, no. These the, the, these Narnian kings and queens—they're super cool. They'll get your story. Yeah, yeah. So he does sneak down, and just like Corin says, creeps over the veranda, gets out there. And that's how the chapter ends with him escaping the like clutches of the Narnians, but really just like him and Corrin swap places back. Yeah, it's a really sweet scene just because like they're immediate friends. It's great. And yeah, total princess in the popper vibes. It's great. All right. So that gets us right into chapter six. So Shasta among the tombs. This is kind of an uneventful one in a lot of ways, I think. Um, but we'll, we'll get through it. So Shasta gets out of the city and he goes to these tombs outside of the city, which is where they all agreed as a group, uh, him, Bree, Wynn, and um, Aravis, to meet if, you know, anything went wrong in the city. So goes out to the tombs, but doesn't find the rest of the gang there. Instead, he finds this cat who's just hanging out, hangs out with this cat, and ends up um, falling asleep. But this cat is described interesting as like, a kind of like an old wise looking cat who's been there for a while. And like in his eyes, he knows a whole lot of what's going on. Wonder where we've heard that before. He wakes up that night after falling asleep next to this cat to the sound of jackals, basically making whatever sound jackals make 
in the desert. Gun to, gun to my head, you tell me what sound does a jackal make? I'm like, I'm like, pull the trigger, dude. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's he is obviously very scared. Uh, he doesn't have a big war horse this time to race him out of danger. And he's like, all right, well, looks like these jackals are going to come eat me. The cat is nowhere to be seen. Then out of nowhere, he sees the figure of this shaggy-headed, four-legged creature come out and, like, roar and kind of, like, scare away these jackals. But then as it's coming closer to him, he realizes, like, it's not that big, and it's just the cat from before. So he thinks, like, okay, I don't know. I must have imagined that. And here I just want to say this is another bibliotheques thing that I just want to bring up. We have a countenance alert. It was uh, included in this passage. For all of those wondering, we get a countenance alert. That's great. So Shasta goes back to sleep um, and wakes up the next day and he decides, okay, gang is still not here. I'm going to go borrow some fruit from a villager's garden. Uh, Raid is the. (laughs) Yeah. As if raiding isn't just like burglaring by violence. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So grabs some fruit. He takes a dip in the river and gets kind of worried because he's like, oh, fuck, I've been down here for a while. What if they've gotten to the tombs and I'm not there? Runs back to the tombs. Still no one there. And at this point, he's kind of doing the logical thing, like worrying about how long he's supposed to stay there without anybody coming to meet him. Like, did they leave without me? In which case, I'm waiting here for nothing. Or maybe something really bad happened to them in the city and they're not going to find their way out here anyway. So like, How long am I supposed to wait at these tombs for? And as he's thinking about this, there's an armed man leading Bree and Huynh out towards him. And they are dressed up in their regular horse stuff again, like full bridles, saddles, everything looking very not talking horse like. And he's like, "Okay, this looks like it's got to be a trap, especially considering Aravis is nowhere to be seen in this in the, in this situation. And that is how chapter six comes to a close. Important that we note that in the previous chapter five, we forgot to mention that in their calculations about escape and whether or not they'd be let free if Susan were to tell this guy no um, on his marriage proposal, they, the Raven says that in his flights over the desert that separates uh, Tashban and Archenland, there is the big, tall, insurmountable mountains that Narnia is famous for. However, there is a ridge line that comes in that's actually not a ridge line. It's a whole other set of mountains with a mouth in the front. And that is the one place that you could go to that wouldn't allow you to cross the mountains over them. You'd be able to actually go into this pass and like with like a decent amount of men find this river and then make your way to Archenland. Right. Kind so of the, and, an alternate route through an the alternate desert. route. Yeah. And um and through that description in Shasta's dicking around by the tombs, he does notice that mouth on the ridgeline. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that gets us right into chapter seven. Aravis in Tashban cut back to when Shasta is picked up by Edmund and is like whisked away. Very heads up play by Aravis. Doesn't panic, doesn't do anything, just hangs on to the reins of both the horses super tight and doesn't make any fast moves to give them away. However, after the Narnians leave, she sees another litter. So this is a Tarkina on this one, but she recognizes her and she's like, oh shit, I wonder if this Tarkina is going to recognize me. We were kind of like in school together. One sentence later, 
Aravis, what are you doing here? Yeah. And then another like super heads up play by Aravis. She's like, all right, fuck this. Just like hops up into the litter with this chick and is like, you shut your fucking mouth right now. No one's supposed to know I'm here. And she's like, well, like, I thought you were supposed to marry the Grand Vizier. He's the Grand Vizier now because the old guy died. So he's promoted now. Uh, Also, your dad's in town. Big worried about you. And he's like, she's like, again, stop talking. Yeah. Yeah. This is another um, moment where it's just like this chick has no concept of urgency or danger or anything and is just as concerned with talking to Aravis about the dress she's wearing as like the impending doom that her friend faces. Right. But the message does get through and she's like, hey, we need to go to wherever you're going now. Take my horses. They're in the crowd right there. And so this woman. So this woman's name is Lass, Lassaraline. Lassaraline. But, but we'll call her Lass. Yeah. So Lass and Aravis and the horses go back to her place. Lass is trying to like kind of get the lowdown on what she's doing in Tashban, but it's mostly like, oh my God, this place is so cool. I get to like wear all my clothes and I get to go to feast and I get to talk to people. It's so fun. Like those dudes from Narnia, they're so hot. Oh my God. And like, <laughs> and Aravis is like, I need to get out of here. Yeah. And there's like, and there's a little bit of like a weird dichotomy where like, you know, they both like like each other because they were in school together, but like they're exact opposites. Like Lass is all into like traditional feminine girl activities that you would expect from this time, like lounging around and eating berries and in expensive clothes and jewels and mm-hmm. wearing expensive clothes and jewels. And Aravis is like your archetypical tomboy who likes hunting and bows and arrows and swords and horses and swimming. And they both don't know why the other person likes what they like. Mm-hmm. It's like, who cares? Yeah. But they do come up with a plan to get Aravis out of there, much to the protestation of Lass, who's like, I don't know why you don't want to marry the third most powerful dude in Calorman because that would make you rich and you'd get to hang out with me and we get to go to river parties together. Yeah. Isn't that what you want? And she's like, no, <laughs> I do not want to be a child bride to this dude who has a humpback. She's like, have you seen this guy? Have this you dude seen is- him? And Lass's response to that is like, yeah. But he's rich. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good. No. You don't like it. You hate to see it. Lewis has transitioned from problematic race talk to now the extremely not great feminine stuff that we talked about your mom with. Yeah, and talked I think this with is your a mom, great example of how, you know, my mom was saying, like, Lewis will write girls differently than he writes women Mm -hmm. where like a woman he writes as being something that's like undesirable whereas like a girl hasn't been you know quote unquote corrupted by that kind of thing yet so we're seeing all of that played out here okay but through lass's tears she agrees to help her not marry this ugly rich dude Mm -hmm. and you know they kind of go down so she dresses her up as her like slave girl and they go down, but they get kind of like run off their course. I don't know about you. Is it kind of not super easy to follow? Yeah. So I, the plan, the plan as I understand it was first, we need to get the horses out to Shasta. 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 Yes. So they devise a plan to get somebody to basically bring Bree and Quinn out to the tombs. 
So we understand that we've seen that happen already through Shasta. The other side of it is we need to get Aravis out of the city through this alternate route where we're going to go through the palace where big bad guy lives and the Tisrock, the Sultan may guy he live forever. May he live forever. And we're going to sneak you out through like kind of a waterway down there where we can get you on something to like get you out of the city via that way. And yeah, so they, they go through the palace and they're headed down this hallway and they notice, okay, there's a couple guys walking backwards with candles, which can only mean one thing. Royalty is coming. Tisrock, may he la- live forever, is on his way. They get super fucking scared, hide in this room and like hide behind a couch. And they're like, please don't come in here. And guess who comes in there? The Tisrock. His, may he live forever. May he live forever. His son, the prince, who was the guy that Susan was in town to marry, right? Or like see, like test his bona fides. Right, right, right. Yeah, but it's the same guy. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then lastly, the newly made grand vizier who is supposed to be getting married to Aravis any day now. And so whenever he can get her his hands on her, it's just like minus Aravis's dad and Shasta's um, dad. Like these are all the people in one room that we don't want to see right now. Yeah. And then the chapter kind of ends there where it's just like, all right, we're hiding behind a couch and we're just going to have to see what happens next. Yeah. And we know the Tisrock is the Tisrock because he has like a pointy hat. And apparently that makes you Tisrock. No one else is allowed to have a pointy hat, but he's like, Dressed in like all the like random trappings of royalty. You got like jewels and talismans and like different layers of different types of clothes. So he looks like a big, shiny, gaudy rainbow with a pointy hat and pointy shoes. And he's obviously fat. Yeah. From a, <laughs> from a life of like eating berries and cream and like just like, splashing slaves in the water. Too many water parties, man. It gets you. It, it does. Yeah. You get bloaty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, this uh, this section of the book, I just wanted, like, we don't give our episodes any kind of, like, um, like, we don't do titles outside of, like, the episode name or, like, whatever section we're reading. But this could easily just be called, like, the down bad chapter oh, yeah. section because, like, everybody is just losing the brides that they're supposed to be getting married to and are just getting big mad about it. Like. <laughs> It's just happening all over the place. All over. All over. People are either losing their for, brides or their their adopted son slash slave. For for the so the country of Calorban, which, you know, sounds suspiciously like colored men, but we will. Yeah, God. Uh is famous for these forced marriages. These guys are mad because they're the richest and most powerful people in their country, and they can't force a fucking marriage to save their life. Like, hey. Yeah. What are we doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is our thing. <laughs> Narnia has their weird law where women get to like consent to marriage. And here we just make it happen and we can't do it. What's going on? Yeah. It's just, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm frankly, I'm, I'm worried for him, man. I don't know what's going to happen to those guys. I thought I could like kind of game out how these Lewis stories are going by the first two. And uh, the themes in this book have shown me I did not. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. What I do like about this book, though, is something that I said before is like, despite all of the racist stuff and like sexist stuff here, of which there is lots of which there's plenty. The big theme that I'm seeing is like, like I said before, 
How can you go from somewhere where you don't know who you are and don't feel like you belong to something to somewhere where you can identify as somebody and belong somewhere? Or if you don't like who you are and don't like who someone tells you you're going to belong to, you can escape from that too. So despite everything else that's questionable about this, I do like that as just kind of like a theme going through. Yeah, I I really like that, you know, when this book starts, you really think, okay, this is going to be Shasta and Bree's story. And it immediately becomes Shasta and Bree and Aravis and Wynn's story. Yeah. The expectations in this book are completely like blown up by the end of the second chapter. It it becomes like a story about a group instead of just what you think it was. If you just read, if you judge a book by its cover and said the horse and the boy, obviously there's a horse and a boy, but we get a horse and her girl too. Yeah. It's, it's something that I think, is really fun to show you that whenever you think you have a problem and that you want to escape, there are other people in the exact same boat as you. And you're like never alone in your desire to find a better life and find your people. Totally agree. So next week, we're going to finish up the book. We'll see if our gang actually makes it to Narnia and what happens there if they do. So yeah, thank you everybody for listening again. And we will see you next week. Thanks guys.